Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, April 19. I'm Carolina Rosario. These are today's headlines. A weekend of violence across the U.S. as a wave of mass shootings from Texas to Wisconsin hit the nation. In Minnesota, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former officer accused of killing George Floyd, begins to wrap up. The city of Minneapolis bracing for a verdict. And could this be the turning point? Vaccinations now open up to all residents here in the United States. These and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with more mass shootings in America. Five people were hospitalized after being shot and injured in Shreveport, Louisiana, outside a medical office late Sunday night. Police are investigating and a motive is unknown. Meanwhile, another mass shooting, this one in Michigan, four people were injured after someone opened fire at a vigil Friday on Detroit's east side. The victims were taken to a hospital and are expected to be okay. Police do not have a suspect in custody and the investigation is ongoing. And the violence continuing, authorities have apprehended a person in connection to Sunday's mass shooting in southeast Wisconsin that left three men dead. The U.S. has seen a spike in these incidents over recent weeks, and some officials see it as a second pandemic affecting the country. Grecia Lastra has a report. Three people are dead and two others severely wounded after shots are fired early Sunday morning at the Summers House Tavern near Kenosha, Wisconsin. Sounds like uh, one person got removed from the establishment uh, and, and possibly came back a short time later. Experts consider an incident with more than four people shot, excluding the shooter, a mass shooting, and at least 50 have occurred in the U.S. since March 16th, when eight people were killed at three spas in the metro Atlanta area. I mean, in this last month, it's just been horrifying what's happened. How can you say that's not a public health issue? On Sunday afternoon, Texas police responded to a shooting incident that authorities say claimed at least three lives. As some analysts say, the gun issue defines part of the way the world views the U.S. Our allies are perplexed um, and worried about the fact that we can't seem to have a national conversation about the epidemic of gun violence in our country. Some psychiatrists say these frequent shootings are causing Americans to become more desensitized toward gun violence. The body naturally responds from the horror and the shock to try to protect ourselves by increasingly becoming numb. This is Grecia Lasta for U News. And we have an update on the shooting in Austin, Texas. A former sheriff's deputy in Texas has been taken into custody for that incident. A motive remains unknown for now. And now let's go to Ali Brown. She is a member of the Indianapolis City Council, County Council. Thanks for joining us, Councillor Brown. Um, I want to start asking you, what does this tell you about the limitations or problems with the red flag laws? Well, I'm going to let of what, a lot of what Prosecutor Mears said stand, because what it shows is that we have some laws, but it's really more like a Swiss cheese of any kind of protection. There's no way in Indiana that we could feel safe. We have some of the most lax gun laws in the nation. Um, and even the fact that when the ones that we do have, when implemented, can work, can also be easily just switched 
and 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 we can be shut out from being able to to do anything to protect ourselves. It's it's really really hard to hear. And very important with those laws, not just the law itself, but how and who is enforcing those laws. I want to ask you something else. Uh, is there popular support for closing background checks loopholes in Indiana right now? Not only is it uh, massively popular with everybody in Indiana, but 70% of gun owners here believe in closing those uh, background check loopholes, whether it's at gun shows or from person to person sales or online sales. Responsible gun owners want this. They don't want to be lumped in with these other people. They want to know that people carrying, whether uh, they're, they're concealed carrying, they're carrying at home, they're shooting for sport, they're hunting, that they have gone through some kind of background check to have that weapon. Absolutely. Let's see what happens with those uh, adjustments. And now uh, the police are still working to determine a motive, but four of the eight who were killed were Sikh community members. And for those who doesn't know, Sikhism is the world's fifth largest religion. Could this shooting in any way may be motivated by race? Well, the, the last thing I'm going to try to do is get into the head of, uh, of the shooter. But what I am going to say is that people of color, minority communities, minority religions are often the targets of, of violence. And we know that. We know that uh, on Monday of last week, we passed a, a resolution in our city county council uh, decreeing the rise in anti-Asian hate. And then four days later, we lose four people out of our Sikh community. We lost eight people, four of which are Sikh. 90% of uh, the people who worked at that facility um, are, are part of the Sikh religion. So, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard when we, this is our third mass shooting in Indianapolis this year. Gun violence doesn't, it affects everybody. It doesn't just affect, uh, you know. Absolutely. One religion. Absolutely. And as you said, this is a third uh, mass shooting this year. So it's very concerning. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here with us, uh, Indianapolis City Council. And we will be looking forward uh, to see what happens next with these gun regulations. Thank you so much for having Thank you so much. And the nation is on edge as we await a verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin, who is accused of killing George Floyd last summer. The prosecution and defense making their closing arguments. Andrea Linares has a report. Closing arguments set to begin this morning after three weeks of intense testimony from 45 witnesses, including George Floyd's loved ones, medical experts, and more than a dozen members of law enforcement. The prosecution expected to go first, making their final argument that former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin violated his department's policy when he knelt on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, killing him by asphyxia. A healthy person subjected to what Mr. Floyd was subjected to would have died as a result of what he was subjected to. The former cop facing three charges, second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. After the prosecution, Chauvin's defense team will get their turn, likely arguing it wasn't his knee, but rather Floyd's heart condition and drug use that caused his death. The defense only has to raise doubt in the mind of one juror to avoid a conviction. The nation now closely following any possible verdict in Minneapolis, around 2,000 National Guardsmen already deployed to the area. 
The city also moving public schools to remote learning starting Wednesday. From coast to coast, major cities are tightening security. Demonstrators are demanding justice following the recent police-involved shootings of Dante Wright and 13-year-old Adam Toledo. In Raleigh over the weekend, police arrested 12 people after protesters damaged property and set small fires. The jury in Chauvin's trial will be sequestered once they begin deliberating. From coast to coast, preparations are underway. In San Francisco, discretionary days off for all officers are canceled. The same in New York City and in D.C. Officers beginning around the clock, 12-hour shifts starting today. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. People 16 and older now able to get a coronavirus vaccine anywhere in the U.S. The Biden administration pushing forward to reach vaccination goals by this summer. All this as the future of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine remains unclear. Lorraine Cáceres has the latest. COVID-19 vaccines available to all Americans 16 years or older nationwide starting today. Widespread vaccination is the only way we will ultimately move past this pandemic. So far, more than half of the U.S. population has received at least one dose and about 32 percent of people are fully vaccinated. But enthusiasm might be dropping. A recent poll from Monmouth University showing about one in five adults say they're not willing to get vaccinated. The highest hesitancy still among Republicans. So it's almost paradoxical that on the one hand, they want to be relieved of the restrictions, but on the other hand, they don't want to get vaccinated. It just almost doesn't make any sense. The pause to the J&J &J vaccine not helping in easing doubts and worries about any of the available vaccines. Patients are asking me a lot of questions over the last weekend, but the pause is necessary so we can better understand generally this vaccine is definitely safe and the cases are so low and there's really not much of a link that we see. Dr. Anthony Fauci saying he expects the pause to be lifted this week, although some restrictions may still be required. Now, I don't want to get ahead of the CDC and the, and the FDA and the advisory committee, but I would imagine that what we will see is that it would come back and it would come back in some sort of either warning or restriction. Again, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to be ahead of them, but I keep getting asked that. I do think we will get it back in some manner or form. But what I'm sure, I hope, uh, that we don't see anything extended beyond Friday. We need to get Friday some decision one way or the other. Meanwhile, cases are still rising in almost half the country. The seven-day average of cases steadily increasing despite vaccinations. In Michigan, the new epicenter of U.S. infections and where more than 7,000 cases are being reported daily, at least 35 hospitals are now at 95 percent capacity. And although hospitalizations nationwide are increasing, the death toll and the, the seven-day average of deaths is still steadily declining. Now that we have eligibility open for all age groups here in the U.S., the focus now is on children. Uh, studies are already underway, and Dr. Anthony Fauci is saying that it's very possible that we start vaccinations on children younger than 12 in the first quarter of 2022. Back to you, Carolina. And those are good news. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Meanwhile, more than 3 million people worldwide have died of the coronavirus since the beginning of the pandemic, according to John Hopkins University. 
the U.S. has the highest number of fatalities, more than 566,000 deaths, followed by Brazil and Mexico. The World Health Organization warned this week that the pandemic was at a critical point with an average of 12,000 deaths per day. And it is not showing signs of slowing down as this week's global daily new cases are nearing the autumn heights of January. And in France, four new deaths have been linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. That is according to the country's National Agency for the Safety of Medicines and Health Products. The agency said there have been 23 cases of serious adverse reaction to the vaccine thus far. Those include blood clots and bleeding disorders. Last week, it also announced four deaths, which brings the total number to eight in the country. Over 4.4 million people had been fully vaccinated in France. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. U News, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And on Capitol Hill, the House will vote on legislation this week to make Washington, D.C. the country's 51st state after pledging to prioritize it during President Biden's first 100 days. The House previously passed the bill last year, but it went nowhere in the GOP-controlled Senate. Even with Democrats now in control of both chambers, D.C. statehood faces an uphill, unlikely climb to actually passing Congress. Democrats would need the support of at least 10 GOP senators in order to advance the bill without getting rid of the 60-vote filibuster. Supreme Court today will hear arguments in a case that could impact hundreds of thousands of immigrants in the U.S. who have received temporary protected status, also known as TPS. At issue is whether those who receive TPS are eligible to apply for green cards even if they initially enter the country illegally. Edwin Petit is in Washington, D.C. with the details. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. This case started with Jose Sanchez and Sonia Gonzalez, a Salvadoran couple who have been living in the U.S. for over 20 years. I can tell you that when the New Jersey couple applied for green cards, they were denied because they entered the country, as you mentioned, illegally. That started a long legal battle back in 2015 when the couple decided to sue. So far, there have been a couple of discrepancies among courts of appeal. Three have voted in favor of the couple and two against. This is why the case was sent to the Supreme Court, who decided back in February to take a look at it. Today is just opening arguments, and despite the case not drawing too much attention here in Washington, D.C., it is raising questions about the Biden administration's approach to immigration, not to mention the status of hundreds of thousands of immigrants living in a state of limbo. Today's hearing could determine whether tens of thousands of TPS beneficiaries can get green cards without first leaving the country. A former federal prosecutor tells us what could happen once the Supreme Court makes a decision. Take a listen. If the Supreme Court rules that the TPS, the status of TPS is an admission, 
People with TPS might be able to adjust their status to permanent residence from the United States, provided they satisfy all of the statutory requirements for adjustment of status. Almost half a million people, most of them from El Salvador, live in the United States under the program of TPS. And that in itself continues to fuel criticism among some Republicans who are claiming that allowing TPS beneficiaries to apply for green cards would undermine the whole point of the program, intended initially to provide temporary relief, not permanent residence. The Supreme Court, Carolina, is expected to announce a final decision before the summer. That's what I have live from Washington. Back to you. Thank you, Edwin. Definitely TPS has been a, a long issue in, in Washington, D.C., and this is very important for tens of thousands of people that benefit from that. Thank you, Indeed. Edwin. And in other immigration news, President Biden said he will increase the maximum number of refugees admitted to the U.S. this year after backlash from refugee advocates and some Democratic lawmakers. Biden's initially order, initial order to limit admissions to 15,000 was a blow to advocacy groups that wanted the president to quickly reverse Trump-era policies limiting immigration. Joining us now to talk about this is Jael Shacker. She is with the advocacy group Refugees International. Thanks, Jael, for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Jael, what was your reaction to Biden's initial announcement on Friday limiting the cap to 15,000? I was initially kind of confused and disappointed. Um, the president in February um, consulted with Congress and said that he would raise the admissions cap to 62,500 people. So it was a bit of a surprise. There was also a long delay in doing anything at all. Um, and so advocacy organizations like mine were confused because it sort of went back not only on a promise that President Biden had made in his campaign, but just recently in February. And the White House is now saying that a final refugee cap for the year would be set by May 15. What are you expecting to see? What is the ideal number that refugee advocates would like to see? We'd like to see the 62,500 that was promised. We really think that that can, be, that can happen. That was something that we have the capacity to do, that voluntary organizations and others are, are, are ready and willing to welcome refugees. Many people have been waiting overseas. There are at least 35,000 people who have already been vetted by USCIS, the, which is the division of DHS, which, who are ready to come and be resettled. They've been waiting in refugee camps. So we're hoping for 62,000. 2,500. Uh, if not that, certainly many more um, than the 15,000 so far promised. We're hoping that President Biden will quickly and will quickly resettle and hit that 15,000 number, and then come May 15th, we'll we'll raise it all the way back up. And Joel, the president's initial decision appears to have been tied to concerns over the image of admitting more immigrants into the country with hundreds of thousands of migrants requesting asylum at the border. But should both programs be treated equally? They are quite different. And what's disturbing, was disturbing to many advocates, was that this conflation between what's going on at the border and what's going in and the refugee resettlement program is something that President Trump and his administration did all the time. And we were hoping that President Biden would move away from that. We can do both. Um, the two programs are administered quite differently. And again, the people who have been vetted overseas and who are waiting are different than the people at the border. And I think, you know, President Biden said, you know, he can't do two things at the same time. He certainly can. 
He's the president. We're a rich country. We have the ability to do this. The Office of Refugee Resettlement, which works with both populations, can do both. Uh, if more money and resources are needed from Congress, uh, the president should ask for that. So we can welcome both populations. Let's see what happens. Thank you, Jael Shaker of the organization Refugees International. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.